You are listening to the Norton Library Podcast, where we explore classic works of literature and philosophy with the leading scholars of the Norton Library, a new series from W.W. Norton that introduces influential texts to a new generation of readers. I'm your host, Mark Chirino, with Michael Von Cannon producing, and today we present the second of our two episodes devoted to Charlotte Bronte's classic novel, Jane Eyre, as we interview its editor, Sharon Marcus. In part one, we discussed who Bronte was, the mad woman in the attic, and some of the novel's major characters. In this second episode, we ask Sharon Marcus her favorite line in the novel, a Jane Eyre playlist, common misreadings of the novel, and much more. Sharon Marcus is the Orlando Harriman Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. She's the author of several books, including Between Women, Friendship, Desire, and Marriage in Victorian England, and more recently, The Drama of Celebrity. Sharon Marcus, welcome back to the Norton Library Podcast. Hi, it's great to be back. It's great to have you. So now we have a different series of questions that will engage with your personal reaction with this novel. We're really looking forward to hearing you talk more about Jane Eyre. Why don't we start with how you first encountered the work? I grew up in a house that was jam-packed with books. We, we lived in New York City in a very small apartment, and all the walls were filled with mostly paperbacks. And we had so many books and so little space for them that instead of having them, you know, spine up, they were stacked on each other. <laughs> and um, they were, and my father bought most of them and my mother was more into classical music. That was her cultural thing. And they were almost all by men. My father loved Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and John Cowper Powies, wherever the hell he was. There's so many books by him. And there were really almost, there were a lot of 19th century novels, mostly French ones, but there were almost no books by women. There, so I, I was the kind of girl who was very interested in girly things. And I was especially interested in like femme fatales, like Woody Allen and Annie Hall. I liked all the mm. villain, villainesses in the Disney movies. I was like, I have a sleeping beauty. I don't know about her, but that stepmother is really, really, <laughs> and her outfit is way better. So, you know, I would pick these books out like Nana for some reason, my, my, because the books were kept in no order. My father would buy duplicates all the time. He had like three copies of Nana. I was like, oh, this looks interesting. Prostitute scandal. Okay. You know, like any typical kid, I was interested in all the things I wasn't supposed to be reading. Madame Bovary, Anna Karenina, but I would read the blurbs and be like, okay, he marries, has an affair, dies. Uh, uh. And then I remember it was, it was this paperback edition. It was very drab, actually. It was like a grayish blue. I think it was a dolphin edition from the sixties. That was like a cheap paperback. And it said Jane Eyre, Charlotte Bronte. It was like double, double ladies. Okay. How old would you have been at that time? I think it was around 10. My parents were in some ways very, um, they gave me a very rigorous upbringing in some ways. And in other ways, they were ridiculously permissive. So it was just like, read whatever you want. 
And I did. So I remember like struggling to get the book out because it was packed in the middle of one of these, you know, weighty, weighty columns of books. And I opened it up and I, I read the first line. There was no possibility of going for a walk that day. And I was like, Whoa, who is this? Like, and as I kept going, I thought, this is so interesting. This is a 10 year old, nine year old girl. I think she's 10 and she's so strong voiced and she's not at all cheerful both in the children's books i was given i mean this was like just slightly pre-judy bloom era like literally by a minute so i was reading a lot of children's books from more from like the 60s with the exception of harriet the spy i felt we were still in a moment where like children's books had to be very positive and children in general and certainly 19th century children were supposed to either be seen and not heard or cheerful. Everything that Aunt Reed accuses Jane of not being early in the book, she says, you need to acquire a more childlike disposition. So as you matured and became a literary scholar, how has this particular novel factored into your work? Well, it's interesting because I've come back to it over and over again. So when I first read it, of course, I identified most with the childhood part. And I, I, I'm not even sure I got past the first section. I think once she stopped being a kid, I wasn't so interested in it anymore. I don't fully remember the first time I read it all the way through, but it would have probably been my first year in college. And The Mad Woman in the Attic had already come out. So I remember going to the bookstore and buying The Mad Woman in the Attic and reading it and being introduced to this idea that maybe Jane Eyre is even more rebellious than she seems because the Mad Woman represents her deepest desires. And that Mad Woman in the Attic as a work of scholarship was also very much about female creativity and female authorship. Like the whole book is really about reading all of these key works by women writers as allegories for what it means to come into being as a writer. And I was reading Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own. And I definitely remember then thinking of Jane Eyre as a kind of uh, feminist manifesto and novel form. I see. Then a few years later, I read the Gayatri Spivak essay that said, yes, and precisely because of that, there's a real danger that Jane in asserting herself is asserting herself in a very imperialistic way. She's using all the tools her culture gives her to be a person. And one of them is being racist and asserting her strength either as a savior of other women who are not white or by demonizing other women who are not white. So that gave me a lot to think about. In grad school, I wrote an article about the novel and the way that Jane uses advertising to achieve independence, because the moment that she decides to advertise as a governess is very, very strange in this book. It's it's an interesting thing to pay attention to. She gets a message basically from some kind of fairy or spirit telling her to advertise and she keeps hearing it in her head. So, you know, as grad students, well, I I really fixated (laughs) on that and and worked a whole reading out of that. And I've always taught this novel when I've taught the 19th century novel. So I must have read it 13 times by now. So in your teaching and in your engagement with other scholars, what do you think are common misreadings of the novel? I think a common misreading of the novel is that Jane is a pure rebel. So as I talked about 
in our in our previous discussion, she's less a fan of liberty and more a fan of independence. And that's a subtle but important distinction. When the United States severs its ties, well, with the what's about to become the United States severs its ties with England in 1776, they have a declaration of independence, not liberty, because no nation can exist in pure liberty. Liberty is a state of no form, no boundaries, no restraints. And I think we often think that that's what Jane wants, especially because that's how she starts out in the beginning. But what I've learned by reading the novel more carefully, by reading it in the context of the history of childhood, the history of liberal theory, political theory, even the history of feminism, is that she is seeking something that in some ways is more difficult than liberty because it requires a form, it requires decisions, it requires self-control. And that's an independence that also recognizes her dependence on other people. Yeah, that's a great distinction. In your teaching of this novel, what have you found are the challenges, either the challenges to teaching Jane Eyre in the classroom or the challenges to studying Jane Eyre as a student or just for the average reader to pick up the book, what will the challenges be? My first answer is there are delightfully few challenges to teaching this book. My students love reading it. There are few books I teach in my Victorian novel course or my Buildings Roman course that the students are just like, yeah, yeah, bring it. I couldn't stop reading. I kept going. And those would be Jane Eyre and Wilkie Collins' The Woman in White. Those two, I never have any trouble getting people motivated. The plot is great. The pacing is fantastic. There are twists and turns and surprises. The narrator has an incredibly vivid voice that draws us in and makes us feel really close to her. I will say though, of course, there are always some challenges. Um, the, one of them relates to doing the Norton edition that, you know, Bronte was a very erudite person. She knew the Bible. She knew Shakespeare. She knew poetry. She knew nature. I, I talked in the first episode about how below the parsonage was this whole town. Uh, behind the parsonage were the moors. And she spent a lot of time wandering there. And as kind of a nerd, she knew the name of every single flower. And, and Sometimes when people, and she knew French and she loves to yeah, drop the right. French in, you know, one of the things about having the character of Adele, who Jane takes care of this little French girl, is it's a reason to have nonstop French in some of those sections. And students don't, I find that, especially when meeting for a class, people want to understand. And so students are justifiably often a bit put off when they encounter a lot that they don't understand. Um, and in annotating the book, what I tried to do was not annotate every vocabulary word that might be a little obscure or unfamiliar because I trust readers, especially students today, to just Google something they don't know. What I did was if when I saw something that was a little unusual and I Googled it, if the first answer was not the right answer, yeah. you know, maybe it turned out to be a, a word that had been appropriated for a brand of golf club. I was like, okay, I'm going to annotate this because if you Google it, you're not going to get any help. Yeah. But I think that the, the allusions and the ways that 
Bronte is just always casually referencing the Bible as though we all know it chapter and verse minister's daughter, but also people did know the Bible chapter and verse if they were living in England in 1848. That can be a bit of a challenge today. And what I would encourage people to do is like use the notes if you want them, but also I always tell students it's okay to not understand 100% of right. what you read. And there is so much here that you can understand and it comes alive well, really easily. Your notes are not intrusive. Uh, you've been, you, they're spare notes that are meant to uh, illuminate some of these, uh, some of these difficulties. Um, in this novel, do you have a favorite line? I do. It's three lines. If if I will be permitted. Sure. And it's when Jane is telling Rochester, Edward Rochester, why she is really upset that he's been toying with her. And she says, do you think because I am poor, obscure, plain and little, I am soulless and heartless? You think wrong. I have as much soul as you and full as much heart. And if God had gifted me with some beauty and much wealth, I should have made it as hard for you to leave me as it is now for me to leave you. Wow. Well, just listening to you read it, it strikes me that as a first person narrative, Jane's voice emerges. How do you define her voice or how would you characterize her voice as a narrator? Well, I think it comes through in that quote. She's very eloquent. Mm. She's not a Jane Austen where everything is measured and balanced. She's more of like a build up to a big, big finish. And so, you know, she probably learned something from listening to her father preach sermons, mm. although I'm not sure he was the fire and brimstone type. She actually uses often very plain words. And it's, of course, a, a speech about being plain, but plainness, not meaning that you're someone who should be dismissed. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a reference both to her lack of external beauty, but to, you know, she's not someone who presents herself as extraordinary, really. Um, she's probably more extraordinary than she gives herself credit for. And, and her voice is just so filled with emotion. I think, you know, you, you asked about one of the misconceptions people have about the book. I think it's um, not so much about the book as about Charlotte Bronte as a person. They think that she was kind of uh, mousy and and stuck off in the middle of nowhere and not very adventurous, but she was none of those things. And like Jane in this speech, she was emotional and very, very brave and bold going off to Brussels, uh, you know, with just her sister, Emily, who by all accounts was uh, very much in her own world, not really a support system for Charlotte. And she's just going to do it. She's going to do it. She's going to say it. And there's a, a courage to Jane's voice that expresses her courage as a character that I find very compelling. When you teach this novel, what techniques do you use to make the material come alive? What do students seem to respond to? We definitely talk about the mad woman in the yeah. attic and the kind of interpretive crux that that is. It's, it's usually a point in the course where I say, one of the fascinating things about literature is that it presents us with very rich symbols that we know have a meaning, but it doesn't tell us exactly what the meaning is. And sometimes it's hard to know. So 
I'm going to present you with two really conflicting accounts and I want you to think about which one you find more persuasive or is there a way to unite them in one framework? So I, I think students actually, that sounds very abstract, but I think students really respond to it because they're sitting there going like, what? <laughs> um, I think it is really great when teaching the book to look at moments where we really experience the narrator as narrator and say, what's the difference between a narrator and a character, which we notice more easily when the narrator is outside the story, either because they're an omniscient third person or they're someone who's not very significant in the story. So I think students really get into that. I, I think they like getting into the ways that the story feels so uh, so compelling as a story and they get really lost in it and then taking a step back and asking, how is this put together? Sharon, we also invite our Norton Library editors to offer a hot take about the book that they've edited, something counterintuitive or even controversial. Do you have one about Jane Eyre? My hot take is related to... Um, a spoiler thing. So I, I'm going to, I'm not going to be able to make my hot take hot. My hot take's <laughs> going to be epic. But I think that people have totally misread what happens at the end and totally misread what happens to the man that Jane marries at the end. Um, and I guess I can't say any more without spoiling the ending, but uh, I'll just leave that there and say like, you know, if you've read the novel and you want to ask me what my hot okay. take is, email me. My, my email is available on the Columbia website. And I will, once you prove that you know how the novel ends, I will tell you my hot take. That's enticing. And so your introduction has no spoilers and this podcast will have no spoilers either. So we've been pretty disciplined about that, I think. Yes. What about for the 21st century reader, various adaptations of the novel, movies, what how has this taken life in, in different forms? So many movies, and they all suck, in my opinion. Really? That's my hot take. That is yes. a hot take. None of, you wouldn't recommend any of them? I recommend none of them. I saw, like, I like Charlotte Gainsbourg, so I saw that one. I can't even remember. So one thing that's really interesting to me about the film adaptations is they've never had one, in my opinion, where the Jane and Rochester actors are equally compelling. So I remember Charlotte Gainsbourg and I can barely remember who played uh -huh. Rochester. Then I remember the one with Mia Wyskowska, but I really don't remember her very much. I remember Michael Fassbender, who was a pretty compelling Rochester. Interesting. But I recently rewatched the very famous 1940 adaptation with Joan Fontaine and Orson Welles, and they should have just renamed that puppy Edward Rochester. They literally cut the majority of Jane's dialogue. And, you know, Rochester has a lot of monologues in this book. He, and they're fascinating. He's a really interesting character. The fact that Bronte could write that character tells us a lot about Bronte because he's as much an expression of her as Jane is. But Jane talks a lot too, both as a narrator and as a character. They cut out all her narration wow. and they cut out a lot of her dialogue. I was Appalled. Also, it's shot on these, it's 1940, so it's a classic Hollywood film, but they shot it all on these sets that are so obviously made out of cardboard that it's almost ludicrous. The only reason to watch 
1940 version is for the beginning so that you can see a very young Elizabeth Taylor playing Helen Burns, wow. which I will also point out is horrible miscasting, but nonetheless interesting. How about audiobooks? Anything, any other form that you've experienced this novel? My guilty secret is I've, never, I've listened to like half of one audiobook in my entire life. So I can't speak to the audiobooks. Maybe there's some great ones out there. Again, if like someone's listening to this and you have listened to a great audio version, I'd love to know. Does Wide Sargasso see is that? Yes, that's a different question. So that's a question about adaptations that have uh, riffed off the novel. Influenced, and there, right. I think it's a testimony both to Jane Eyre's, the novel's limitations and riches that it has spawned so many so many different um, adaptations and you know remakes, and they're also different from one another. So Jean Rhys writes White Sargasso Sea from the point of view of the mad woman in the attic. Um, and that's fascinating. I highly, highly recommend that. Many people read Daphne du Maurier's novel, Rebecca, published around uh, 1930, late 1930s, and a bestseller that's never gone out of print and has been adapted into a good film by Alfred Hitchcock with Joan Fontaine playing wow. the character in that, who's the Jane Eyre-like character. And she's the one who plays Jane in the 1940 version of Jane Eyre. Um, many people see Rebecca as a take or a redoing of the Jane Eyre plot because it's a sort of shy, mousy companion gets involved with a mysterious older man who has a mysterious past related to marriage. Um, but, you know, we never know the name of that character. It's one of the jokes of the book. Rebecca is the name of his first wife. It's as though Jane Eyre were called the mad woman in the attic and not Jane Eyre. And she's much more of a, as a, a nullity. She's not as interesting as Jane Eyre. Uh, I, I would actually make the case maybe even for Fifty Shades of Grey being a bit of a riff on Jane Eyre because it's the same thing, a younger woman with a very charismatic older man who's complicated and has a, you know, a past, including past women in his life who represent an obstacle to their happy union. And, you know, like, how does it go? Twilight begat Fifty Shades of Grey, but Twilight itself was riffing off not only of Dracula, but off of a lot of these archetypal 19th century novels. What about music? Do you have a playlist or what music does Jane Eyre invite you to think about? I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> and I think that was going to be the most challenging question of I gave it a lot of thought. I have, I have a few different answers. So one would be just, you know, in terms of like, okay, Jane Eyre is this kind of mood. What music has this kind of mood? And in my Build on Roman course, I gave students the option of creating a playlist. Um, and Phoebe Bridgers showed up on everything. Okay. So I'm going to say maybe Phoebe Bridgers, but don't. I guess I can't say don't tell my students because they might hear this, but I, I really love Phoebe Bridgers and I do love Jane Eyre. So I would say, you know, I might put forward PJ Harvey, like someone who just to look at some, you know, it's different, depends what phase of her career, but doesn't always present herself in like a full on rock star style and is, you know, small. There's like a smallness to her physical appearance, but boy, packs a punch. 
filled with emotion and also has a real feel for nature and for the British countryside in particular. So I feel like if I were going to have someone like score the book or yeah. write songs, if we were going to do like a new, a good film adaptation finally and have someone just write and but make it a little bit like uh, Peaky Blinders where you have like really contemporary music, I'd be like, let's get PJ Harvey. Now that's a great idea. I have to say. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I would tell the producers like what you got to make sure is that Edward and Jane both have to be really, really yeah. great actors and get equal play. And then I was thinking about it more in terms of um, of like a musical style. And I, I tend to always think in terms of like, okay, the three great jazz singers, Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan, which one are you? And while my personal favorite is Ella Fitzgerald, I would go with Sarah Vaughan if I were saying like what qualities of musicality and voice get at Jane Eyre, because Sarah Vaughan has this big, complicated voice. You always feel like all the notes between notes and within notes, impeccable technique as a jazz performer. And you know, like where Billie Holiday is like sad, but kind of acid also, and Ella Fitzgerald makes everything sound cheerful. Sarah Vaughan has this emotional range in her voice that's both joyful and sad and wise that I think really gets at the fullness of Jane Eyre's that's, voice. That's wonderful. I'm really glad I asked that question. Sharon, we were talking about your notes to your Norton Library edition. And I wanted to ask you about one in particular, if you wouldn't mind uh, sure. expanding on it a little bit. And this is the note to page 165. This is chapter 15. And your end note says this paragraph exemplifies why Rochester is considered a Byronic hero or anti-hero who shares characteristics both with the poet Lord Byron himself and with the protagonists of many of Byron's poems. So what qualities are we really talking about? Well, I think Bronte says it really well. So here's what Jane is saying about Edward. I had not forgotten his faults. He was proud, sardonic, harsh to inferiority of every description. He was moody too, unaccountably so. Mm. Uh, She describes seeing him look up a morose, almost a malignant scowl, blackened his features. And then, and I think this is the flip side. So, you know, Byron was a bad boy, but a bad boy that the ladies loved. So, and they always thought, oh, I can redeem him. I can make him better. Underneath that moody, capricious, oblivious harshness is a is a, a kind little boy who just needs to be tended. And so here she goes. But I believe that his moodiness, his harshness, and his former faults of morality had their source in some cruel cross of fate. I believed he was naturally a man of better tendencies, higher principles, and purer tastes than such as circumstances had developed. So... This idea that there's, that a man is a rake and that that itself is kind of appealing. She falls in love with him partly because he's moody and capricious, but that you can reform him and make him better, make him the man you want him to be, that you can have the combination of danger and safety that I, I think is a real theme in a lot of romances that you'd be yeah. able to have both in one package. I think that's part of the Byronic hero and Rochester is that to a T yeah. or a B. 
Maybe we can end just with a consideration of the contemporary relevance of this work, how we think about this in 2023, as opposed to the way it would have been received in 1847. So can we do you have any thoughts about how the novel responds to today's situation? I have two main things to say about that. One is we still hear a lot today about women in particular dealing with codependency. Hmm. I'll use an incredibly contemporary term, which would be how do you balance having relationships with others with maintaining a sense of self? And that's a challenge for everyone, but it continues to be more of a challenge for women than for others because women are still, I think, expected to define themselves more in terms of relationships than work. Even in working, sometimes, you know, there are more women in the paid labor force than men in, in the United States when they do the surveys, but women aren't defined first and foremost yet as earners or workers. And so women really place a lot of importance on relationships. And then that creates a challenge of how do you hold on to a sense of self? So I, I hope I'm not shocking anybody by evoking like self-help kind of language like codependency, but that those books are bestsellers for a reason. They speak to dilemmas we're still dealing with about what it means to be a person. And then let's go back to those film adaptations. So, you know, Jane is really not pretty. We're told that over and over again by her and by other characters. It's clear she's not super attractive. There has not been a single film version that has had the guts to cast an actor in her role who is not really beautiful. And I, and why is that? Because they have to cast a trained actor. And is any woman allowed to work and do leading roles in cinema without being beautiful? No. So I would say that as a society, we have not yet let go of the idea that physical attractiveness is really, really important for women and that even, you know, to be entitled to a full life, it really is going to be a challenge if a woman isn't pretty. And, and people collude in this even when they don't mean to. And I think the book is really uh, daring in giving us the heroine of a romance plot who has a happy ending. We're not going to say what it is, but it's a happy ending. And it's not like she wakes up and all of a sudden she's gorgeous. She's not. And I think Bronte's saying you don't have to be. Like That's part of what it means to be a full person is that what matters is your soul and your mind and your heart and not the physical envelope. Sharon Marcus, thank you so much for joining us on the Norton Library podcast to discuss your edition of Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. Thank you. The Norton Library edition of Charlotte Bronte's great novel, Jane Eyre, edited by Sharon Marcus, is available now in paperback and ebook. Check out the links in the description of this episode for ordering options and more information about the Norton Library, including the full catalog of titles.